We've been studying about why we're here. Why, are, why am I here? Why are you on this earth? And, 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 and collectively together, why are we here as a church? What's our purpose? Are we just here so that we have somewhere to come on Sunday morning and feel good about ourselves? And, and if so, that's, that's not God's purpose. There better be a purpose more than that. In fact, there better be a purpose that's so significant in our hearts, we're willing to die for it. Because if you're not willing to die for something, you're not willing to live. You're not really alive. There's the purpose of our life is when we're so convinced of something, when something means so much to us, that if necessary, we would lay our lives down it. And we may be coming to a place that in our nation where, where as, as, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we may have to come to, play, to that decision where we may risk for our testimony, our lives, we may risk our freedom. And, and there are millions that have gone before us that have been willing to do that and have done that. There are even thousands in this world today that, are, that literally preach the gospel every day at risk of their lives in Muslim nations. But I was encouraged when Brother Gary Crowell was here and we had a chance to see him again on Friday as he repeated again some of the statistics that you don't find in the news that, that Indonesia, the largest Muslim nation in the world, is now considered to be 30% Christian. That the gospel is spreading in Muslim nations. You don't hear that in the news, but that's what the reality is because you cannot contain the gospel. You cannot contain the gospel. I'm convinced with all my heart the gospel brought down the Iron Curtain. It was so the gospel could get in behind the iron curtain. You can't keep God out if people will pray. You can't keep God out. You can try to legislate him out. You can build iron curtains and you can build bamboo curtains and you can build anything man tries to build. But God's greater than man. You cannot keep man out when people pray for God to get in by his spirit. And we have to have more confidence in who this God is we've given our lives for and we're willing to serve. And so we're finding, why are we here? What are we here to do? And that's why in these times when you get, when we have news and the courts make decisions and the, the Congress passes laws and our leadership says certain things, we can't be afraid because we're here for such a time as this. And if we engage in the purpose for which we're here, then God comes right along behind. Psalm 91, the great psalm of protection, says, He who dwells in the secret place under the shadow of the Almighty. The secret to being under God's protection of the 91st Psalm is to being in the the secret place of the Almighty, which is right up behind him in what he's doing, in his purposes. And so we're looking at why are we here? Why are we here as a church? Why are we here? And we've looked at what Jesus told his disciples because we're the same church. We're here for the same reason. And we saw in Mark chapter 16, Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. We've talked about going, we've talked about into, we've talked about all the world, and we've talked a little bit about preaching, but what we're looking at is what is this gospel? What is the gospel we're supposed to go and preach? Well, it means good news. And so we've been looking at what is the good news of the gospel. To do that, we're going to go back again and start in Romans chapter 1. So if you'd put that up there. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is, the gospel is the power of God. Paul was not ashamed of it because to him it was not just a doctrine or a teaching. To the Apostle Paul, it was not just a theology or an ideas. Men generally don't die for ideas. Men generally don't die for doctrines, but they'll die for a person. They'll die for someone they love who loves them. And he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. It is the power of God. It is the power of God. Now, there are times, I don't know about you, but when you get 
bad news reports about what's going on in the world and you find ISIS is running out of control in the Mideast and all these threats are around. That's why be careful not to listen to too much of that stuff. Because I've never yet turned on CNN or Fox News or MSNBC or some of the others, which I won't even turn on at all, and, and really very often, very rarely do you hear good news. But if you open this book, you'll hear good news every day. And this news is eternal. The news, there's an old expression that if you don't like today's news, tomorrow it's going to be on the bottom of your parakeet's cage. <laughs> it passes, it goes away, but this is forever. It's the power of God unto salvation to change things, to deliver, to set free. And we went on then to look at verse 17, because it tells us why. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. From faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So the power of the gospel is that it reveals something. And that's what we've been looking at. What does it reveal? We've talked about what the word reveals. I'm not going to go back over that. What it reveals is the righteousness of God. And what we've looked at about revealed is the word reveal means there's something that already existed. It's already truth, but we couldn't see it yet. This is why John talks so much in his gospel, but especially in the first letter that he wrote, about walking in the light. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another. We can walk together with one another because we're both seeing the same thing. And the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. It only cleanses us to the extent that we're walking in the light of it, the truth of it. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 says that Satan is the god of this world. And he blinds the eyes of those that don't believe so that they can't see the glorious light of the gospel that's in, fate of, in Christ Jesus. So what's going on here is a battle of light and darkness. And the key to that is because if you're walking in any darkness, you can't see the truth. And the gospel reveals something about God. And what it reveals to us is the righteousness of God. And what we began to look at last week is there's two sides to that righteousness. And we're gonna, you've got to look at them in the right order or else you don't see what's so good about this news. And we've heard a lot about the, right, the other second side of the righteousness of God, which is that God has made us righteous in His sight. 2 Corinthians 5.21, He who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. We've been given His righteousness. But that doesn't mean very much to us unless we understand what that righteousness is we've been given and how much of, and this is the key, how much of a gift that was. Because if we don't understand the righteousness of God, we're going to look at ourselves and you know what, say, you know, yeah, I understand why I've been made the righteousness of God. I'm, I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I'm okay. And what God's done is he's added his goodness to my goodness that I already had so that now I'm complete in Christ. So he took my little bit of goodness and then he added, filled in all the rest. When they did this, laid this beautiful floor yesterday, they had to come up and fill in some, some imperfections that were in that subflooring because when we ripped the old carpet up, we discovered there were some major imperfections in the floor that was underneath it because the carpet, listen carefully, covered it over so we couldn't see what was there. We found holes, about two inches. We found places where the floor wasn't even, where, where they built an addition on this sanctuary about 20-some years ago. And so they had to fill those in before they could lay the level floor on top of it. 
And I think sometimes we think that's what God's done with us. He's taken our imperfections. And in Christ, he's filled in those imperfections so that we look nice and level and straight in God's eyes now because God's filled those in in Christ. That's absolutely wrong. That's not what the Bible teaches at all. Unless you saw this as one huge hole (laughs) and they had to construct it from beginning. The righteousness of God is so if all we understand of the righteousness of God and the gospel is the righteousness we've been given, been made right in God's eyes, and we don't understand what that righteousness is and what, why we needed to be given that righteousness, then the gospel won't have any real impact in our lives. We'll just kind of take it for granted. So that's what we're looking at. And that's what Paul goes on to describe here. This is what we started to look at last week. Verse 18. So, I mean, he's talking about the righteousness of God. We're studying good news, and the third word we're going to see here is wrath. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Pastor, we're talking about good news, and you're talking about wrath? Wait a minute, they don't seem to go together. Well, just hear me out. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness, all ungodliness, and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Verse 18, verse 19. For what may be known of God is manifested in them, for God has shown it to them. So what he's going to say here is that why God holds us accountable, can righteously hold us accountable, can justly hold us accountable for our unrighteousness is because he has made nature in such a way that we, if we just are open at all, can realize that there is a God. And what he's talking about is man, because we went back and looked in, in Genesis 1 and 2, and we saw that when God created man, he created him in his image and he made him perfect. He made him holy, just he made him out of his own image. So he was as holy and as righteous and as pure as God was from the outside to the inside, spirit, soul, and body. We saw that Satan came in. And Satan, who in his own right in heaven, whenever, when he rebelled against God, he got lifted up by his own beauty, which he didn't create, God created him. And as he took his eyes off of God and began to look at himself, he began to admire his own beauty and fell into the deception that we all fall into when we take our eyes off of God, which is that we did this ourselves. And he became impressed with his own beauty and then eventually forgot where that beauty came from and thought it was his by his own doing. And therefore, because of that, he thought he had some rights that God was depriving him of. And so he took a third of the angels and tried to rebel against God. Well, that didn't last long. Jesus said, I saw him fall from heaven like a bolt of lightning. Along with a third of the angels, and he came down here and he became Satan. And now as this beautiful creation, as God recreates this place and places his man in that garden of delight, all that God does is tell him, you can enjoy this. I command you to enjoy it. Eat of every tree. There's one tree you can't eat of. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if you eat of it, in the day you eat of it, you will die. And actually the Hebrew says, in dying you will die. Well, Satan comes in and he tempts them. And the temptation wasn't to eat the fruit. The temptation was to disobey God. The temptation was to take things into their own hands. And his deception was God's keeping something from you. 
God's holding something back from you. Because God knows that in the day that you know good and evil the way he knows good and evil, you'll be like him. And God doesn't want you to be like him. So God's keeping from you a knowledge that he knows if you have this, you'll be just like him. Well, it says in Genesis 1.26, God made man in his image. So God wasn't trying to keep them from being like him. He made them like him. But what God kept from them is the knowledge, the responsibility. This is what came to me this week. The responsibility for handling the knowledge of good and evil because God knew the man he created and he didn't design him to handle that, that knowledge and responsibility on his own. God designed man to simply do what God said because God wouldn't handle the knowledge of good and evil. And Satan comes in and he he convinces them to take, because there convinces them that God's keeping something from them, God convinces them to take a step and take their lives into their own hands and very, in essence, become their own gods of judging for themselves what's good and evil, of judging for themselves what's right and wrong. And man's been doing that ever since. Satan tempted them to join in his rebellion. That's what the Bible calls it. And that's what we've been looking at. I want to read some statements to you. I read some to you last week. The root of sin is not the acts or the deeds that we commit, but the heart from which they come. It's a heart issue. And there's three things in this. It's a heart that's self-centered. Self-centered means it's all about me, how things affect me. Remember when we looked in Isaiah, we saw about Satan, when he, in his, what was going on in his minds? We saw that he said, I will make myself like the Most High. I will ascend into the heaven. I will do this. I, me, my, mine. In the space of, I think, three verses, that first pronoun is five or six times. It's all about what I'm going to do, how this affects me. And this is very subtle, because we may not be people that are always talking about me, my, mine, mine. We may not be people that sound proud, but we interpret things in terms of how it affects me. People are right to the extent that they agree with me. People are good to the extent that they're like me. We don't like to be around people that disagree with us because it... It's, it's uncomfortable for us because it distinguishes them from us and, I, and, I, and it suggests that there's always a possibility I may not be right. I'm going to make a statement from you. I don't want you to tell anybody else. Those that are listening on the radio, don't tell anybody else. <laughs> but right now, standing here today, now don't get up and leave. I'm going to tell you categorically, I'm not right about everything. <laughs> and neither are you. And neither is anybody else except Jesus. Therefore, I can't be so adamant, because I've found out things I was adamant about when I was younger, I'm not quite so adamant about now. That's why we need to have people around us that are more mature, that are, let me how I word this correctly, that have been around a little while longer, <laughs> because they have experience. We also need the freshness of youth, the zeal of youth, that sees things really as right and wrong as yes and no. And if it's wrong, let's not do it. If it's right, let's do it. And let's do it with all our heart. And as we get older, we kind of learn how to compromise and say, well, you know, we may not have to get... Don't start getting so fired up about that. Well, there's some things we need to be fired up about. And that's why we need the youth, the young people around us to do that. But they need the older perspective that, you know what? 
I've been where you are, and I've been absolutely convinced I was right, only to find out later on I wasn't quite as right as I thought I was. So it makes me a little more cautious about making adamant statements unless they're right out of the Bible. I don't know how I got off on that. Oh, okay, self-centered. It's about me. It's how things. I see everything in terms of ultimately how does it affect me? What does it say about me? What does it reflect on me? The second one is we're self-reliant. It's an inner confidence in myself that I know what's best for me, that I can do it somehow. And you may be a person, this is funny, because you can be a person that thinks you have no confidence at all, but you're always looking at things in terms of whether you have confidence or not. I can't do anything. I'll never amount to anything. That's a form of pride, because it's all based on what you can do or can't do. Everything's in terms of what you can do and what you can't do. And I'm going through this slowly because I want us all to see how deeply embedded this is in us. We're saturated. It's in our DNA. Self-centered, self-reliant, and the the, the heart of all of the hearts is self-willed. And that's the most subtle one of all. I can sit here and agree with God and say, I'm going to do everything you want, but somewhere down inside, I still hold the right to make the final choice of what I'm going to do. And I may, I may be completely obedient in everything I do. But somewhere in my heart, it's because I decided to do it and to agree with it. It's the story of the little boy. This is the other side of it. The story of a little boy who was about five years old and he was this father in church. And it was an old church with the wooden pews. And um, it's a time for them to sit down for the message. And the father sits down, everybody else sits down. But the little boy is standing up. And the father says, Johnny, sit down. Johnny doesn't even say anything. He just keeps standing. Stiffens his back. Johnny, Johnny, sit down. Stiffens his back. No, I'm not going to sit down. So the father says, Johnny, sit down. Just sit there. Finally, the father puts his hand, because the father's stronger, and he forces Johnny to sit down next to him and holds him down. And while the little boy's sitting down there, he looks up at his father and says, I'm sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. <laughs> And that's where many of us are. We do what we do because we're supposed to do. We do what we do because we're afraid of getting God, but we don't really want to do. And, and one of my favorite scriptures is, for God is at work in you. Isn't that nice to know? Both to will and to do is good pleasure. God cannot and will not change your will, but he will work on you to influence it. He will work on it to influence it. And one of the things about God, because he's a father is God knows his children. We have four children. And each of them are different from each one or the other. And two of them are identical twins, and there's still differences with them. And as a parent, you get to know their bent. When it says, train up a child in the way they should go, that word in Hebrew actually, according to their bent. And, and there's some children that just, you know, they're, they're just going to do what they want to do, and it's, they're hard to bend the other way. And you have to use different methods and techniques. But there are some children that are very sensitive. And if you speak to them or treat them the same way you do the children, child that's strong-willed, you will break them, not bend them. And so God knows us. Isn't that nice to know? He's a father. He's not a dictator. He's a father that loves his children. And Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 5, says, Because he loves us, he'll correct us. But he corrects us according to what his knowledge of us is and what we need. Isn't that reassuring? 
God designed your personal, your correction personally for you so that you'll get there. And because he knows your bent and your tendency. And so, so this tendency on the inside is I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And some of us are just, you know, outwardly, you know, we're stubborn. And then there are others of us that are more subtly stubborn. Is we'll, we'll call passive stubbornness. We'll go along with it, but I'm not going to agree with it. And so we read God's word the same way. All right. I want to go for a minute. We'll come back here. Well, no, we're going to go on. We're going to go on. Uh, where are we? We're on verse... Um, let's go to verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things which are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but they became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. They knew there's a God. There's an old expression that even in an earthquake, even an atheist looks up. Back in the war, there was one, I think it was, you know, there's no atheist in a foxhole. I mean, we can say there's no God until all of a sudden our mortality and our circumstances become very clear to us. And then we realize there better be somebody else be bigger than me. And so the, the point that Paul's making here is that all you've got to do is look at creation. And if your mind's at all open, you'll see there has to be a God. But we're in a climate in a society right now that doesn't want there to be a God. And because I don't want there to be a God, therefore I suppress the truth. Go to the next verse. Being foolish, professing to be wise, they become fools. So you can have the most brilliant people in the world, the highest IQ, the greatest education, can be fools in God's eyes. In fact, the, Bible, the biblical definition of a fool is a man that says there's no God. I'm, well, I'm not going to go there. No, it was, it was a person in my life that was highly educated, that I respected very highly. And, and I remember, you know, hearing what they, they didn't believe there was a God. And they went to Harvard Law School, Harvard College, and with high degrees and great intelligence. Hard to almost talk to them, they were so intelligent. And I was walking into their office one day, and God spoke to me. Because I was a little intimidated by them. He says, uh, what does my Bible say about somebody that doesn't believe I exist? Says, it says you're a fool. He says, well, that's what I say too. <laughs> Professing to be wise, they became fools. Verse 23. And exchanged the glory of the corruptible God into an image made like the corruptible man, birds, four-footed animals, and creeping things. Verse 24, Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanliness. Notice what he did. This is what God does. When you decide, I'm going to get rid of God. I don't want there to be a God. I know God's, the evidence is around me. See, we, we, somebody says, well, it's not just, it's not fair. Imagine yourself standing before God and telling him something's not fair. I told you the story last week of, of Billy Graham when he was interviewed by Larry King years ago, obviously. And Larry King says, all right, you know, he, G, Billy Graham told him basically what the gospel is, that if, if you die without, outside of Christ, you're going to go to hell because that's what the Bible teaches, because that's the truth. 
And Billy, and he said, well, what about, you know, what about the people that haven't heard? Is that fair? And Billy Graham's answer, he was just so simple. Say, if you don't, you don't have to defend God. You just say what God says to say. He said, I don't know. I don't know how to answer you other than this. I know this one thing. When each one of us stands in front of God, we're going to know whatever the judgment's right is just. We're going to know. Because he's absolute light. And so what, what Paul's talking about here, and this is the unrighteousness that God's talking about. This is the unrighteousness that God's wrath is against. It's when we suppress God. We say there is no God because I don't want there to be a God. Because if there's a God, then there's going to be a standard. And if there's a standard, then I'm going to be held accountable to that standard. And I don't want a standard that I'm accountable to. I want to be able to do what I want to do. That's what happened in the garden. I want to be the control. I want to be, have the destiny of my life in my hands. I want to be in control of my life. I want to be a self-made man, a self-made woman. I want to be that. That's what I want to do. Well, that's great. Therefore, I can't have a God. Because then I'm going to have to stand before him one day. And this is what Paul's talking about here. Suppresses the truth. I don't want to see the truth. I don't want to know the truth. So I'll construct my own truth so I don't have to look at this truth. And then what I'll do is begin to redefine the truth and say, you people that believe this stuff are bigots. That's where it's headed. You're narrow-minded. You hate people. You're against people, which is interesting because the number one command we have is to love people. And maybe if we loved people the way we're called to, they couldn't deny and call us bigots. They couldn't deny and deny we are because they couldn't deny Christ's love. People can't deny that love when you see what he did for you. And so here's what it goes on to say. This is on, we're on verse 24. God gave them up to uncleanliness. No, he gave them up. Basically what he's going to say here is, is when man, men decide, look, I don't want God. I'm not saying about searching. I, I don't, there's no God. I want to be able to do what I want to do. There comes a point where God says, okay, go ahead. Have at it. Have fun. Just you be your own God. I'll, it says I, he gave them over to their own ways. He gave them over. He gave them up. In other words, he took his hand off and said, all right, you go for what you want to go for. You know right from wrong. You understand now good and evil. Go at it. He gave them up to uncleanliness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. Now, I was not originally going to read through these rest verses, but I don't want to avoid them either. So I'm going to just go down through them, and this is just what the Bible says. Verse 25. Who exchanged the truth of God for a lie. That was there. That's, that's man's decision. That's not God's decision. It's an exchange. The truth of God's all around me. The truth that God exists is all around me. The truth of truth is there's a creator is all around me. And that he's greater than I am. That I didn't create this, he did. But I don't want that God, so I have to exchange. It's like buying something. I turn one thing in to get something else. They exchange the truth of God, the light of God, for a lie. It's an act of the will. 
choosing to walk in a lie. They worship and serve the creature, the creation, rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. This is what happened in the garden. This was what the temptation was. To worship the creation. This is what Lucifer did. He worshiped the creation and took his eyes off of the creator. And this is what he's tempted man to do. This is why I have all kinds of laws protecting creation and are writing God out of the creation. Well, let's go right on down and read it. Verse 26. For this reason God gave them up to vile passions. He didn't make them do it. He just let them go. You said, you know right from wrong? Go ahead. You do it. For even their women exchanged the natural use of what was against nature. Likewise, the men, leaving the natural use of woman, burned in their lust for one another. Men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their heir. God just let men go what they want to do. That's all it's saying. God says, all right, you don't need me. I don't exist. Go at it. You know right from wrong. You know good from evil. You go administer good and evil. And we're looking at a world and the fruit of the world of the result of man's ability to handle the knowledge of good and evil. God's not angry at anybody. This is a result of man rejecting God. And even then, they don't like to retain God in their knowledge, verse 28. God gave them over to debase mind. He just let them do what they want to do. That's all. He's not pouring judgment out. He's letting man do it on himself. To do those things which are not fitting. Being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, is not just homosexuality. It's just look at the whole world. Wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, whispersers, backbiters, verse 30, haters of God, violent, proud, boastful, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteousness judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve those who practice them. Now, we're not going to go into chapter 2 right now, but chapter 2 says, well, don't look at that and think you're so great. Now, what Paul's doing here, understand this. We're still talking about good news. What Paul's doing is setting up the groundwork to show us what grace and love of God has really poured out on us. Because Romans 1 tells us the righteousness of God. Romans 2 says we're all guilty of it, unrighteousness. So when you think you're sitting there judging the world out there today, you need to look in yourself and see whether there's any of that in you. Then chapter 3 says basically what this does is this all qualifies us for God's grace. Of course he says, hey, if you're any in doubt about your interpretation of this, Romans 3 says there's none righteous. No, not one of us in our own might. So if we're to, stand, if we're to measure up, and this is what the first side of the righteousness of God, it's looking at God's righteousness, who God is and how he lives himself. It's looking at God's truth, God's honesty, God's purity. The righteousness of God actually is God's judgment against any unrighteousness. Because if he doesn't judge unrighteousness, then he's not righteous. If he doesn't deal if he doesn't if he doesn't judge unjustice, then he's unjust. 
But see, we have trouble understanding that because we think in very relative terms. You know, we're like the Pharisees. You know, I'm not as bad as that. I know the world's in trouble, but, you know, we're pretty good people here. We come to church, we give our tithes, we do these things. We're pretty good people here. The question is, how do we measure up apart from Christ? In God's eyes, not in my eyes, not in your eyes. The righteousness of God talks about His righteousness, how righteous He is, how holy He is, how truthful He is. He is truth. How loving He is. And it tells us we're all measured by that. Well, if you think you're... Let's go quickly over to 1 Samuel, because there's a good example of this. The word... I'll show you what the word God uses. 1 Samuel chapter 15. Verse 22. Now, background of the story... Yeah, we got time. Background of the story is the children of Israel have been brought out of Egypt. God's met with them. We're going to talk about this probably next week. God's met with them on Mount Sinai, and God's given them the law. God has had leaders. He's had Abraham, Isaac, Jacob... Jacob, Isaac, yeah, Isaac, Jacob. And then uh, uh, he had Joseph for a while as a leader. And then God has Moses, and then he, and then he has uh, uh, Joshua. And then there's a period where God has individual leaders called judges for specific seasons and specific times. And then there's a period of time, the last of those judges is a man named Samuel. And Samuel is also a prophet. And at that point, the children of Israel decide, we want to be like everybody else. God's been our king and although we're the most prosperous people on the earth, we're blessed, we're protected, we, don't want, we want to be like everybody else, so we want our own king. And God says, all right, if you want a king, see, what? you've got to be careful. You push God, there are times God will say, okay, go ahead. That's what you want? You want it hard enough? Let's find out. I would do that with my kids some. I'll still do that with people. They get determined and say, look, I don't want to listen to you. I'm not going to argue with you. You think you're right? Go ahead. We'll find out. When you bumped your head enough and you stuck your finger in the light socket enough, come back and I'll love you and pat you up and you know, maybe then we'll listen. And that's what God does with us very often. So God says, all right, you want a king? Here's what's going to happen. He's going to take your daughters in service. He's going to conscript your men into battle. He's going to take your, tax you with gold because he's got to support himself and all his houses and his castles and all that stuff and his army because he's going to have ambition. And this is what it's going to mean, but if you want to be like everybody else, here's a king. And he told Samuel to appoint Saul as the king and anoint Saul, and he does. And Saul, is, first of all, starts out great. But then Saul has some issues, which are the same issues we have. And this one issue is when God, through the prophet Saul, Samuel, says, here's God's told me. He's told me for to you to go and take your army and utterly destroy the Amalekites. There were people that had, had, had injured Israel when they came out of, when they, before they entered the Promised Land. They were purely evil. It was so ingrained in them that their children were evil. And only God knows when you get to that place. When it's so evil, it cannot be redeemed. It's like my mother, when she was growing up in Maine, my grandfather was out doing whatever he was doing one night, and when he came back home, apparently he was not too stable both on his feet and in his judgment. And as he came up on the back porch, he was met by a cute, acute, uh, acute uh, uh, cat that had two white stripes down his back. <laughs> and his misjudgment was he thought it was a cat, not what it was. 
and that cat turned around and let him have it. Full force. So much that it woke my mother up on the third floor of the house on the other side. And my grandmother came out, made him take his clothes off, because the clothes weren't coming in the house. Bathed him in tomato juice or whatever it is she bathed him in. Went out, took the clothes, dug a hole in the ground, set them on fire, and buried the ashes. Why? Because those clothes were so saturated with the smell of that skunk, there was no way to redeem them. And a people can get that so evil that you can't get the odor out, the ungodliness out. And only God knows when that judgment's come. So God told Saul to utterly destroy the Amalekites from the king on down. And Saul goes into battle, and they kill the Amalekites. They beat the Amalekites, but they take... Oh, and, and they destroy all their livestock. But Saul decides to take the sheep, the best of the sheep and the goats, and to spare the king, Agag's life. And that night, God speaks to Samuel and tells him what God, Saul's done. And Saul, Samuel shows up the next day and says, Have you done what the Lord God said? Have you utterly destroyed the Amalekites and the king? We have done exactly what God said to do. Now listen carefully. We've done exactly what God said to do. And Samuel says, uh, nah, nah. What, what is that bleeding I hear? Oh, 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 oh. Those are the sheep. There's some, what we did is we decided, listen carefully, we decided to take the best of the sheep and to take them because we were going to offer them as a sacrifice to God. What did God say? Utterly destroy them. What has Saul and the people done? They have substituted their judgment for, in part for God's judgment. And we're going to read down. This is what these two verses say. Samuel said, Has the Lord great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Now that verse is often quoted by saying, you know, God would rather have us be obedient than offer sacrifices to atone for our sin. That's not what he's talking about here. Here, the sacrifices refers to what Sam, Saul wanted to do with those sheep. Because here's what happened. God said, sounds like the garden, doesn't it? God said, utterly destroy, utter means completely destroy all of the Amalekites, all of their sheep, all of their livestock, and the king. What Samuel did, what Saul did, and his people, is they, they took God's commandment and they interpreted it in terms of what would be a better way to do it. And when God says, has God as much delight in burnt sacrifices as he is in obedience, what he's saying, God takes delight, not in your ideas added to his, but in obedience to what God said. Because what Samuel, what Saul did here is exactly what happened in the garden. God said, you can eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you cannot eat of it. God said, utterly destroy all of the Amalekites and all of their livestock, destroy all of their possessions. And they, they, they beat them, they destroyed them, but they took the best and they were going to do something with that along the same line. Let me read on down. Because what they were doing is they're taking, finding out what God wants done and they're taking 
God's instructions and their own thoughts about it and combining it together to decide what the best course is. I want you to listen carefully because this is that ingrained self in us. Self-confidence. Self-reliance. It's really pride. And we do the same thing. We read God's word and then decide for ourselves what we're going to do with it. Getting quiet in this Presbyterian church. <laughs> we read God's word. I mean, I'm, this is talking to me as much as it is you. We read God's word and then we decide what we're going to do with that. We decide for ourselves what's good and what's evil. Now, we're going to put you back together again because we got the good news coming. But before we can get the good news, we got to find what the bad news was that the good news redeems us from. We got to find out why we're all, all of us, our righteousness is like filthy rags. Verse 23. For rebellion, that's what God calls this. God calls, because what they did, what Saul did, is he took... God's commandment, and he took his own ideas, and with his own thinking, he blended the two together to decide what the right course was. Listen carefully. He took what God said and what he understood, and from the two, decided what the what right was. So God was a resource, very good one. He gave him a lot of weight because he did almost all what God said, but he added to what God said what he thought would help along the process. God does not looking for our advice. God's not looking for our input. God's not looking for what we think is right and wrong because God already knows we're not qualified to make that judgment. All God expects of us is obedience. And I don't like this, what I'm telling you, but it's the truth. (laughs) Obedience is, you're either obedient or you're disobedient. You can't be partially obedient. You can't be 95% obedient and think, oh, well, I'm 95% righteous. I know there's 5% of me that's not obedient, but I'm still, I'm 95%. No, no, it's an all or nothing thing because it's not, it's like, there's no such thing as a partial truth. It's like being somewhat pregnant. You either are or you're not. Now you may be further along in the pregnancy, but you are pregnant on day one as you are on the last day. You're either pregnant or you're not pregnant. It's either truth or it's a lie. And anything that's a shade off of the truth is a shadow. And a shadow is where Satan works. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, as we walk in the truth as God is in the truth, not as we walk in the truth as we see it, if we walk in the light as he is in the light. Okay, now look at what this says. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Whoa! 
So God, I'm going to put you back together again. God calls this attitude of I'm going to decide for myself rebellion. And it is. Because it's establishing my own kingdom within his kingdom. It's what Satan did in the garden. I mean, in, the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in, in heaven. He tried to establish his own authority in, in, in heaven and got kicked out because it was rebellion. And this is why it's important to understand the root of unrighteousness. The root of sin isn't the deeds we commit. That's the fruit of it. It's the attitude of me, self. I know what God says. I know who God is. But I have rights myself to decide for myself what I'm going to do. That's rebellion. And in God's eyes, it is the sin as the sin of witchcraft. That makes sense, because who's the father of witchcraft? Satan. And who brought this into our lives? Who brought this into the garden? Satan. So in God's eyes, witchcraft isn't just boiling cauldrons and funny incantations. It's worshiping another god. And stubbornness. Oh, this gets better. Sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. Stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Why? It's worshiping self. What we're going to go on and look at next week is what God did to make clear this. Was he handed down some commandments? Not rules, commandments. And the number one was to make clear who he is. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of bondage, you shall have no other gods before me. And the number one competitor with God in our lives is self. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, this is talking about Saul, he has rejected you from being king. Let's go over now to uh, Matthew chapter 7. We'll look at this in the New Testament. Say, well, that's just the Old Testament, Pastor, you know. Well, let's look at the New Testament. It is still part of the Bible. This is Jesus talking. I know so because it's in red in my Bible. Verse 21. These are, these are powerful words. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. See, I thought we're saved by making a confession. We are. But that confession has to have some roots in it. That confession is not just words of my mouth. It's a commitment of my heart. It's a commitment of my heart. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. See, if he's my Lord, I'm going to have a desire to do the Father's will. Now, remember, we're still on the other side of the righteousness. We're still on the, on the, on the, on the side that points out our shortcomings, our failure. We're looking at the side of God's righteousness of who God is, of what obedience is to Him. We're going to look at what Christ did for us to save us from ourselves. But we first of all have to look at ourselves, just in case we have this, this image that I'm a pretty good person on my own. I know God's cleaned me up and God's made a lot of improvements in me, but you know I'm, I'm, I'm doing pretty well here. We've got to look at God's standard of us apart from Christ. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father... Verse 22. 
Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. There are people that are going to say, I've done things for you. I've built churches for you. I've established ministries for you. I've, I've done great things in your name. And Jesus is going to say, I never knew you. Look at that. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. The word lawless means, means literally to do what you want to do. You're the deciding vote on what you're going to do. 1 John chapter 3, if you have it. Verse 4. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. The root of what sin is, is lawlessness. I'm not subject to any law but mine. I decide what I'm going to do. I'll listen to God's word. I'll listen to these people. I'll, but I'll make the final decision for myself what I'm going to do. And Jesus says, how can you call me Lord, Lord? And yet you're out there doing what you want to do. Even though it's good things for me, you call me Lord, Lord. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Let's go to Romans 5 and we'll begin to introduce the other side of righteousness. Romans chapter 5. I'm going to put you back together again. Because the reality is none of us can stand under that standard on our own. Verse 12, Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, we've just studied him, and death through sin, thus death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, verse 13, sin was in the world, but sin was not imputed when there's no law. We've got to take this apart in a minute. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even those who had, over those who had not sinned, according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who was a type of him who is to come. I'm going to begin to take that apart from you. We may not finish it today, but I don't want to leave you in Matthew 7. Verse 12, go back to verse 12. Therefore, just as, just as through one man sin entered the world. Well, that's Adam, obviously. That's the rebellion we've been talking about. That's what happened in the garden. Just as through one man sin entered the world and death came in through sin. Remember God said, in the, said to Adam in the beginning, in, in Genesis chapter 2, he said, if you eat of the tree that I'm telling you not to eat of, in, in, you will die. In dying, you will die. And death here does not just mean the cessation of this natural life. It doesn't mean going into a casket and then going into the ground. It means to be separated from God. Because what happened to them? What happened to them in the garden in chapter 3 when they rebelled against God? When they took things into their own hand? Did they get their own kingdom? No. Did they get their own authority? No. Did they get all the blessings? That th no, they got just the opposite. Fear came in. Shame came in. Guilt came in. They hid themselves from the presence of God. They became separated 
from God. And the Bible defines spiritual death as being separated from God, which makes sense when you realize God is life. And to be cut off from the source of life, spiritual life, is to be in spiritual death. To be unplugged from the source of light is to be in darkness. And what we're going to see as we go on with this, from the point of Adam's transgression, God shows up on the scene and has an account. They must give an account. Who told you you, you sinned? Who, who told you you were naked? And in chapter 3, God goes on to give an accounting. It's interesting because the other thing that man does is he begins for the first time to shift blame. Who told you you were naked? And Adam says, the woman you gave me. <laughs> Made me eat of it. Well, I don't see in there where she tied him down forced his mouth open, shoved the fruit in there, made him chew it, and made him swallow it. She just showed it to him. And the choice he made was between following his wife and following God. He got things out of order. He put his wife above God. Now, don't hear me wrong. You put God first, then God will move that wife into a position of honor. And everything, listen carefully, everything in the Old Testament, in essence, from Genesis 3.15 on through to the end of Malachi, is God's effort to try to prepare man to put him back. The law we're going to look at. Moses. Egypt, Israel being formed as a nation. God chose to form a nation so that he could display to the world what God was like, what it was like to be in relationship with him. Because the world now is plunged into spiritual darkness. They had no concept of God anymore. Adam had a memory of him. Imagine living with the memory of what that was like, but you're not walking in the experience of it. There are people today that are like that. They've had an experience with God. There are churches that have had a move of God, and it's all a memory now, and they're clinging to the memory. They're reliving the memory. Remember what those days were like? God's now. He's here. He's present now. He should be fresh and new in our lives every day. So God forms a man, takes a man, Abraham, and forms a nation out of him. Because God wanted the people to know what he was like, puts him in a place in the world, which was at the crossroads of the major trade routes at the time. So people coming from the Far East, from what's now China, back through to what's over into Africa, and what's now Europe, would pass through this land thinking, they said, we've seen the wonderful riches of the Far East, but look at what this land's like. Who is your king? We're a nation that belongs to the Lord God, Jehovah. That was God's plan. We're the nation. And he had leaders of that nation. And then, then God, they, they go down into Egypt and God brings them back out of Egypt. And now they've been, they've been saturated with Egyptian idolatry and the Egyptian gods. And God has to pull them down into Mount Sinai, up to Mount Sinai. And we'll talk about this next week. And come down and reveal to them the Ten Commandments, the law. And God appoints a man, Moses, to lead them through this time. 
And then Moses goes on and then Joshua replaces him and God brings him into this promised land. They settle down and then they go into rebellion. They have kings and they have a wonderful righteous king named David. And then after him is Solomon. It begins to go downhill, divide, the kingdom divides. And eventually God has to take one of the northern ten tribes and just scatter them throughout the world and the southern two tribes and, and, and bring them out into captivity so that they can be cleansed in that captivity and bring them back to try to preserve this small people. And all of this is done. Then the prophets come to walk them through this process, to walk them back out of this process. The prophets come, and all of this is designed to prepare the people to receive God's answer to this problem when he comes. And my point of this, take a look at your Bible sometimes, and take a look at how many pages are in the Old Testament and how many pages in the New Testament. It took all of these pages. Listen carefully. It took all of these pages to prepare man for when God's Redeemer came. They could recognize him for who he was. That's how lost we were. That's how blind they were. And the religious leaders of the age were so blind that when he's standing in front of them, they're judging to have him executed. And he's the one they've been praying to have come. This is how far man fell into darkness and blindness. And the danger of spiritual blindness is you start seeing things and you think what you're seeing is the truth and you become more convinced of it the more you see, but you're in deceit. And the real danger of spiritual pride is you think you're seeing clearly. And the more you think you're seeing clearly, the more deceived you get because you've lost touch with the compass which is God inside of us, and Israel lost touch with the compass. Man lost touch with the compass because he was separated. We're going to have to end here. I hate to leave you here. But next week, we're going to begin to bring the good news. Next week, we're going to show you, but you've got to understand what we're like, who we are on our own, apart from Christ. On my best day, that's what I'm like. On your best day, that's what you're like. In God's eyes. The righteousness of God is God's holy judgment on anything that's unrighteous. And we're going to see that Christ came to take your judgment, the judgment of God for you. And that's the good news. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you, Father, as we've seen your word make clear to us who you are that you are a righteous and a holy God, a God of justice and a God of truth. Oh, but we're so grateful that you're not just a God of righteousness and holiness and truth and justice, but you're a God of mercy, a God of grace, and a God of love. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed upon us in the beloved. In him, in Christ, his redemption through the blood of the cross, the forgiveness of our sins, according to the riches of his grace and all wisdom and understanding. Father, as we go down this road together to make the 
good news of what you've done for us in Christ more real. Open our eyes that we may understand your righteousness and your holiness of who you are, God. That we might truly appreciate the wonderful place of grace and mercy which cost you so much that we enjoy today. That we may be so filled with joy and thanksgiving for what you've done for us, we cannot help but go tell others the good news that we were dead and now we're alive. We were lost and now we're found. We had no future and hope and now we're filled with a future and hope. May this become real to us by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.